is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in chapter 12, uh, uh, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, But what I am doing I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. You may be seated. All right, let's, uh, let's pray one more time together. <clears throat> Father, uh, we need endurance, Lord. Uh, as I think about, Lord, just the age that we live in today and, and just how many adversaries there are to the gospel and how many challenges there are and how much compromise there is really in your church today, Lord, uh, as in every era, as in every time period, Lord, there's always going to be detractors from the truth. There's always going to be those that will come against uh, the received Orthodox Christian faith. And in every generation, you have raised up men and women to stand firm on the gospel. And we just pray that you would help us today as we look at your word uh, to strive to that end, to have hearts that are resolved to stay firmly founded on the truth and that no matter where culture goes, no matter where denominations go, no matter where certain Christian circles or Christian teachers go, that as for us and our house, we will serve the Lord. Give us that conviction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a hallmark of Jesus' own ministry, if you remember, that he was constantly combative. A lot of people today think that Jesus was just sort of this pushover hippie that came down on a cloud playing a harp and walking among the lilies of the field. But we know that Jesus was a man's man. And what made Jesus a man was not that he was strong enough to overturn the tables at the temple because the tables were heavy. What made Jesus a man is that he was willing to stand in the face of the, the, the Jewish institution at that time period that governed everything all around you, to stand in the face of that type of opposition and to speak the truth without compromise. That's a man. He was unwilling to compromise even in the slightest bit. He called sin, sin. He called heresy, heresy. He called, a, he called out a false teacher for being a false teacher. And if you were intent on perverting the way of righteousness, Jesus had no problem whatsoever as characterizing you as a son of the devil himself. That's how committed Christ was to preaching the truth. 
That's how much conviction he had for doctrinal specificity. Not that he was willing to die on every theological hill, although, however, for him, he might have because he knew all truth and you could never debate him anyway. But Jesus, like the apostles, were resolved. They were resolved to always stand up for the truth of the gospel and always stand firm on the conviction of God's word. When the Pharisees had an elevated human tradition to the level of God's commandments, Jesus called them out. When his own disciples were being tossed to and fro by the world and its influences and its persecution and its trials and temptations and tribulations, Jesus pointed it out to them and told them that they lacked courage and perseverance. He knew that their faith was weak, and so he prayed for them. And ever since then, Christ has been interceding for his church, that his church would remain, that his church would overcome. And you remember his words to Peter and to the the disciples, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So we have all the confidence in the world that the church is going to triumph. We are going to win in the end, no matter how bad our world gets. It doesn't matter what they do to Christians individually or on mass scale. Ultimately, we know that the church will prevail and it will win. It will succeed because Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is ruling and reigning in the hearts of God's people. Of God's people. But ever since then, the church has been in trouble. The church has been in trouble from the very uh, earliest stages of its inception. The New Covenant Church has always had those people that came against it from the earliest times conceivable. You see this, for example, uh, in the heresies of Praxius and Noestus, which very few people even know about. Those were the early stages of what would later come to be known as Sabellianism. It was a Unitarian heresy that denied the Trinity. And then after that, there was, the, there was the battle at Nicaea. If you know anything about church history, in 325, two prominent theologians, or at least one prominent theologian and one um, prominent heretic by the name of Arius debated at the Council of Nicaea in the presence of several other scholars and elders and bishops The bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, came to Nicaea and overthrew Arius, and he was condemned and recognized as a heretic. But let me tell you just how severe it got during that time period in history. Arius had a strong foothold in the world. Arius was a friend of the emperor, Constantine, and Arius' doctrine had flooded the Roman Empire so that the Council of Nicaea was that last stake in the ground, that last line in the sand that said, we will go no further. We need to confront this heresy right now, lest it should overtake the whole known world at that time. That's how close church history came to being written as a predominantly Aryan period of time. But by the grace of God, he rose up Athanasius who powerfully defended the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And then after that, there were more. Just when you think the devil was done, he wasn't done. The Chalcedonian 
period of time, the Chalcedonian Council also saw its need to condemn heretics and to preserve the doctrine of Christology. After that, you entered into a medieval time of the Dark Ages where there was, there was the, the oppression of what came to be known as the Roman Catholic Church. Somewhere around the 6th or 7th century when the official universal church, because there's nothing wrong with the word Catholic. The word Catholic just means universal but by the time the 7th century rolled around, the universal church had gone astray and it had lost its gospel. And we know what happened right after that. That was the dawn of the pre-Reformation period of time when men like Wycliffe and Tyndale rose up, that God rose up the Waldensians and other people to preach the true gospel. And God has always had his witness. And at the Reformation, you remember what happened there? Obviously, Martin Luther... 1537, he nails the 95 Thesis to the door of Wittenberg and stands boldly against the Antichrist system of the Roman Catholic Church, renouncing it for its man-made religion, its works-based salvation, and its work-based righteousness, its iconoclastic idolatry, its mariolatry. All of those things needed to be confronted. And in our own day, we have heresies that we are combating today. You remember a time period shortly after the Enlightenment period known as the Restoration Movement, for those of you that study history. During the Restoration Movement, the world saw literally an explosion of Christian cults, those that deviated from the true Christian religion and sought to restore the apostolic order. And that came in all sorts of different varieties. And we're going to talk about some of those as we get into the text. But suffice to say that in every period of the church age, of the church era, there have been detractors, there's been false teachers, and there's been heresies. And it was no different in the time of the Apostle Paul because in this passage of Scripture, he goes right after the servants of Satan himself. And first I want to, as we look at these deceivers at, the, at these false teachers, false prophets, I want to point out three different things about them. And the first thing is their selfish ambition or their self-promoting ambition. Look at verse 12 with me of this text. It says, but what I'm doing, I'm continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. So just a kind of a tangled uh, 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 a verse there that needs to be really uh, sort of unfolded for us to understand. But Paul, when he says, what I am continuing to do, he's referring back to his financial independence in Corinth. The fact that he refused to take financial support for the church so that the church could never put him and the false teachers on the same level. We say The false teachers say, well, look, if Paul gets support, well, we get support too. Therefore, we are, have the same style, the same manner, and the same method of ministry. Far be it from that, Paul says he would preach the gospel to them without charge. That's what he said earlier in verse 7. He says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Paul always putting the needs of the church first, because I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. His aim, his ambition was not monetary. Later on in chapter 12, he's going to say what he was seeking was the Corinthians themselves. 
His concern was for their heart, their mind, their soul, their walks with God, their salvation. That was his concern, their spiritual well-being. He says, I am seeking not what's yours, but you. Not what you can provide me, but yourself. As a true minister of God, I believe that is the posture that you must take for the ministry. The ministry cannot be entered upon for any other uh, ambition or any other motive. The motive has to be the glory of God as you shepherd the soul of God's people. That's what a true minister of God is all about. But they were seeking an opportunity which says two things here. First, false teachers always attempt to attach themselves to the truth. See, they wanted to attach themselves to Paul. They wanted to say that they and Paul and the apostles were on the same plane. And isn't that true, that false teachers oftentimes come using the same language? I mean, just think of the Judaizers in Galatia and the language that they used. Surely they spoke to the Galatians about being righteous, dikaiosune, a term that appears over and over in the book of Galatians, implying that this is the, the very doctrine that they're trying to get at. How does a person become righteous in the sight of God? How is someone accepted in the sight of God? The Judaizers claimed that they knew the way of righteousness. They used the word like justification, covenant promises. They appealed to the patriarch Abraham as an argument for their, for their faith. They obviously used the law and twisted the teaching of the law to their own destruction, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.16. And that is the real danger here in all false teaching, is that destruction awaits Jeremiah told the false prophets, what will you do in the end? When all your influence is over, when all your heresy has been taught, what will you do at the end of it? Well, this scripture tells us exactly what will happen in the end. But here Paul says, they desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the manner about which they are boasting. And so they were looking to be attached to the truth to the apostolic order. That's what they were doing. Paul says, he did not give them any opportunity. And I'd say, that's the posture that we ought to have with a false teacher. Zero opportunity. We give you no platform to spread your heresy. If you want to spread your heresy, you'll have to do that in your own, I don't want to call it a church, but your own building. <laughs> We won't give you a platform here. That's why Paul says he is resolved never to change his policy among the Corinthians. What I am doing, I will continue to do. That is, I'm going to continue to minister in this way, independent of financial support. So closely related to that, false teachers don't only try to attach themselves to the truth, but they always have deeper hidden motives. Turn back to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, because there the apostle Paul has already spoken to this similar issue here. And this is, this is where the false teachers fall in line in, right here. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness. And then I do believe that this, this is sort of meant as an explanatory clause, adulterating the word of God. You see that? 
That means that you are moving the word of God around for the sake of financial gain, sordid gain. So at the very bottom of false teachers' motives is greed. Greed for influence. Greed for power. Greed for money. Greed for money. And Paul cuts them off. He gives them no opportunity. And Paul, as he renounces right here in chapter 4, he also does the same thing in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. He tells the Thessalonian church that this is the complete opposite of the way that he ministered. He says, for we never came to you with flattering speech, nor with a pretext for greed. And then he says, God is witness. Wow. A solemn oath. A solemn charge to any minister, to say, do you have a pretext for greed? Can you call God as witness to the purity of your motives for why you're in the ministry, for why you seek to have spiritual influence and spiritual authority over other people? God is witness. He surely is. He knows. And as Paul goes on to say in chapter 5 of this book, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Every minister will have his ministry examined. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 teaches the same exact thing. And that's what's going on during the restoration movement. Let me come back to that just for a second. Because this progression of wanting to be attached to the truth, but then having ulterior motives, hidden motives, secret motives, that you try to sneak in the back door. Like Paul says there in Galatians, they try to spy out our liberty. Well, during the restoration movement, you had under the leadership of Barton Stone and then the Campbellite brothers, Alexander and Thomas, you had a call to restore the apostolic order. But see, this is the same trick that all, that all cults have always used, that the, that, the, that the truth has been lost, that the Christian church has lost its way, that we have lost the truth, we have lost the apostolic tradition and the apostolic doctrine, and that someone needs to restore it to the truth. It always begins that way. They begin to claim connection to the apostolic order and to the early church. Secondly, there's always a deviation away from the orthodox teaching, like with the Campbellite movement. There was a deviation in the doctrine of baptism. They started calling for baptism as an essential component of salvation, saying that without baptism, you were not justified before God. That, and I would... I would uh, I would suggest to us that is no different than the Galatian heresy saying that unless you receive circumcision, you're not just justified. But they always have something. There's always some trick up their sleeve. There's always some catch to it. They present themselves, as we're going to see, as angels of light. They come as messengers of the truth, but there's always something hidden. There's always something wrong. There's always something corrupted in what they're doing. The third thing is that the movement shatters always into different fragment forms. This happened in the Campbellite movement. Under the teaching of Barton Stone, he produced literally what some have regarded as the spawning ground of Christian cults, giving way and paving the way, we should say, for, for, church, or for uh, uh, groups like the Church of Christ, the International Church of Christ, the Boston movement, the Seventh-day Adventists who follow Ellen G. White and her legalistic teachings of, of, diet, of restoring the dietary laws, Christian science, Mormonism, and the Jehovah Witnesses all came from this period of time. And all because 
a small group of people began to attempt to attach themselves to the truth, all the while deviating from it. That's why when, oftentimes when I talk to people and they're in a false religion, like just this past week, we got a chance to go to Richland College and share the gospel. And then afterwards, my wife and I went to Starbucks. And um, yeah, we do have fun sometimes, you know. We, you know, we were getting really, uh, really crazy there, I know. We went to Starbucks together and we ran into a whole group of Jehovah Witnesses. Just kind of, that kind of thing follows my wife everywhere she goes. She can't. She just can't stay away from it. She just causes trouble everywhere she goes. The cults find her. And there we were in Starbucks, you know. We were, we were sharing the gospel with a gentleman, a bit, just, just a guy that we met there in line. Should I say my wife met him because I would never do something like that? But then all of a sudden, this group of Jehovah Witnesses comes up and starts wanting to talk to us about what we were talking about. And so, as you can imagine, we got into it. So there we are with a group of, I don't know, four or five Jehovah Witnesses in this cramped little Starbucks, and everybody can hear our conversation. Everybody can hear me calling it heresy and calling out their false teachers. And But what I did was I brought them back to the origin of their religion, and I told them something about Charles Taze Russell and, and, and Rutherford and, and the, the founding of the Watchtower Society, because if I can get them to, if I can get to undermine their religion at, a very, at the very root form, then hopefully I can get them to doubt the foundation that they're standing on. And I think that's what we ought to do with, with, Muslim, with, with Muslims or Jehovah Witnesses or anything. I shared with a Muslim at Richland College this week, and I started asking him what he knew about the, the Quran, what he really knew. He said he was very religious, and that he was very, very committed to Islam. And I just started probing, well, 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 how did you get the Quran? Who put it together? Who were they? What were their names? When did this happen? How did the process take place? You know, um, what do you know about those men? And how do you know that tradition is, and, and of course, there's no answers to stuff like that. You know, one encouraging thing for you and us to know about false teachers is that their, their groups don't equip their people very well. And a lot of religious people, and dare I say, even, even just like within Christianity, you have a lot of people that would profess to be Christians, but when it comes down to it, they don't know a whole lot about Christianity. It's a shame on the Christian church. We, of all people who have the truth, we ought to be the most equipped to be able to defend the truth and to combat heresy. So not only... Therefore, do they have selfish ambitions, but they are also under the influence of a, of a satanic deception. Look at verse 13. He says, such men are false apostles. I like that. Such men. Point them out. Put them in a category. Don't just mix everyone together. Make a distinction. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. By refusing to take support, Paul shows that he is the slave of all men, as he says in uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, 19, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, I think it's just a remarkable statement by Paul. I am the slave of all people. Talk about a minister that knew that he had no rights. Totally sold out for the Lord. His life and offering. While he was the slave of all men, 
the false teachers in Corinth were enslaving all of the men there. And enslaving them, as he says there in, in chapter 11 here, verse 20, taking advantage of them, ha- taking them captive, as he speaks about uh, in other places, taking their minds captive in Colossians chapter 2 through their vain doctrines and their vain teachings and their vain philosophies. But Paul makes that distinction between them and he. And notice the descriptions. They are false apostles. And so they are claiming to be what will later come about as the title that they probably were using for themselves called the super apostles, the superlative apostles, the hyper apostles, meaning they they saw themselves as even preeminent among the apostles. They were trying to do that, of course, because they were trying to remove the people from the apostolic way. And that's always the way it, it works. Yes, we'll send you back to the Bible, but you can't go back to the Bible without our teaching. Yes, we'll send you back to Paul, but you've got to go back to Paul with Charles Russell's studies in the Scriptures, and without that, you are lost. You can, you can go back to the Bible, and sure, the King James is a wonderful translation, but you have to go back to the Bible with the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price or the Doctrine of Covenants. You can go back to the prophet Jesus. Sure, of course you should, as long as you go back to Jesus with the Quran. They always claim superiority to the established, already received, historically precedent, orthodox Christian faith. Always. And that's why the Reformation was so beautiful. Because the Reformation established the principle of sola scriptura. Scripture alone Not Scripture only, but Scripture alone, meaning Scripture is the final authority for a Christian's faith and practice in all things. And that's what false teachers can never, ever do. They're deceitful workers. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. It was Christ himself, you remember, that warned about this very thing. You remember Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Do you know what ravenous wolves do? They tear their prey to pieces. They tear you apart. Ravenous wolves are not domesticated. You can't control them. They are out of control. They are dangerous. They are volatile. They have to be locked up, leashed up, caged up. They have to be put down. They need to be killed in order to have control over their ravenous ways. And in the same way, we have to kill false teaching wherever it exists. We can't give it a foothold, just like Paul. No opportunity whatsoever. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. So every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. I may have said that backwards. The recording has a record. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know a false teacher by their fruits. You will see whether or not his doctrine conforms to godliness. And one of the things that doctrines can, that the doctrine of false teacher cannot conform to is legalism. But yet it does. Legalism is not a virtue. 
The Jehovah Witness religion is built on a whole system of legalistic works. Observance of days or saying no days. You cannot observe Christmas. You cannot celebrate Christmas with your family. You cannot celebrate a birthday party. Those types of man-made traditions are what Paul calls the worthless elementary teachings of the world because they are man-made. They're of human origin. They have no divine origin whatsoever. God did not give them anything. Just like Paul said, or uh, Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, says these shepherds, they pro- or the prophets, they prophesy, but I have not sent them. I have not spoken to them, but yet they try to speak in his authority. In the same way, today, Christian cults and all false religions, they claim attachment to the God of the Bible. And believe me, you, every religion, false religion, somehow tries to attach themselves to the Bible. They know, as I was sharing with my Muslim friend, Muhammad, I told him, without the Bible, your book doesn't make sense. If you take the Bible away, and I just pick up the Quran, who is Moses? Who is Abraham? Who is Miriam, Aaron, Solomon, David? All these people that the Quran mentions. If you take the Bible away, the Quran is an unintelligible book. They must have the Bible. They're totally dependent upon the Christian scriptures for their historical claims. It's amazing, just like here, they attach themselves to the truth only to deny it, only to deny it. And such men are deceptive. Look at the language here. They are deceptive or deceitful workers. Their activity is deceitful. They are always working deceptively, secretly. They are always trying to deceive or they're always working in a cunning, crafting way. Um, Not too long ago, I had a couple of my my aunts come to my house. Uh, this is back in California, but they planted some of their literature in my mother's home. And then once I left the house, I don't know why they'd wait till then, but once I left the house, they said, oh, what is this? Oh, we just have, you know, Jehovah Witness literature laying around. They said, oh, what is this? What a great opportunity to talk about coming to the Jehovah Witness religion. And there they attacked my mom. They attacked her with their doctrine. Uh, Should I tell you what happened after that? Uh, I called them, and we talked to about 3, 4 in the morning. (laughs) I was so upset. That's deceitful working. Planning literature in a house, pretending you didn't put it there. That's the type of thing they do. They sneak in their heresy. They sneak in and infiltrate in the church. They try to attach themselves to it before they go away from it. I mean, think about the apostasy of Rob Bell. First, he begins by saying that he is of the same Christian evangelical tradition as all of us. And he had him and men like Brian McLaren and, 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 and book after book comes out where they progressively get worse and worse and worse until finally they are exposed for who they are. Rob Bell now finally publicly saying that he embraces homosexuality. It came out. The truth is known. He is a false teacher. Uh, The Ephesian church, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, or I could read it to you, Jesus praises the Ephesians for standing firm against false teaching. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. 
but you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, that they, that they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. Dealing with false teaching, dealing with false teachers can be wearisome. There's warfare involved in the process. To combat false teachers takes a toll on you, but we have to do it. Listen, this is the church, what theologians call, this is the time where the church is to be described as the church militant, not the church triumphant. We have yet to arrive at our eschatological glory. We can't think as much of realized eschatology as we might have. We aren't there yet. The kingdom of God has not yet fully come. We are still in a, in a, we are still in a dispensation, if you would, of militant evangelism. And I don't mean physical militancy. I mean spiritual militancy, truth militancy, doctrinal militancy that we stand against and we fortify and we expose and we use the weapons of warfare that are mighty in God to pull down, to demolish, and to destroy strongholds. That's what we're doing. And it's getting tough, isn't it, today in our own society? Very relativistic, very pluralistic, political correctness everywhere. So now, if you even sound like you're refuting anyone for anything, you are the heretic. The simple exercise of trying to exercise discernment is now frowned upon as evil itself. How dare you say that you have the truth and others don't? That stuff is everywhere in the mainstream media, as you well know. But it doesn't matter how relativistic, it doesn't matter how blind people are to their ways, we still have to preach the truth. And we ought not be surprised. Back in the text, he says, no wonder, no wonder. Actually, the word, the phrase there literally means, do not marvel. <laughs> don't be surprised when this happens. We shouldn't be caught off guard. I don't believe, I can't believe it's that bad. I didn't know that ministry was so bad. I didn't know that Jehovah Witnesses could be like that or Muslims or Mormons or whatever. Pick your, you pick your heresy. I didn't know that, the, that that was their intention. That is their intention. Their intention is always to deceive. No wonder, because look at the analogy. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We need to pause and we need to grasp the weight of that. Here is the prince of darkness. Here is the, the Satan himself, the great deceiver, the great accuser, the worker of all evil. Here is the evil one himself coming as an angel of light. And I was, I was sort of breaking that, slowing down and breaking that down. First, he comes as an angel. You know what he isn't? He's not an angel. He's a demon. He's actually a fallen angel, right? Why is he a fallen angel? Because he is not an elect angel. 1 Timothy chapter 5, I think it's verse 10. He is not elect, therefore he is a reprobate angel fallen for the destruction that God had preordained. And I know that's heavy, but I'm just here to tell you what the Bible says. Satan was not elect, and there, that's why he fell. 
And therefore, he can never claim to be a true messenger of God. An angel, just angelos, means messenger. He, he's claiming to be a messenger, somebody who is bringing glad tidings of good things. And of what? Of light. Well, if you look up photos in the whole Bible, you will be amazed at what light represents in the Bible. Light represents illumination. Light represents holiness. Light represents truth. Light represents salvation. Light represents purity. Light represents discernment. Isn't this amazing? This is what Satan is pawning himself off as. He is, he is claiming to, to bring the truth, to bring holiness, to bring spirituality, to bring salvation, to bring integrity and sincerity, walking in the light. <laughs> this is the prince of darkness saying that he's walking in the light. We shouldn't be surprised, Paul says, if we've had our thumb on the pulse of Scripture you remember back earlier in the chapter what Paul talked about, Satan coming to Eve. Can you imagine it? Satan came to Eve, deceived Eve, and what did he get Eve to think? Satan is more morally virtuous than God. Because Satan got her to believe God is keeping things from you. He knows that the day of you eat of it, you'll become like him. See, he's, got a, he's, he's keeping stuff from you. God is the deceiver and Satan is the truth teller. That's what Satan does. Every time. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, I believe that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, he blinds them from seeing the light. And what does he blind them with? Light. He, he, he doesn't blind them with darkness, at least not on the surface. He claims to be bringing light himself. He claims to be a light bearer. But his light is a blinding light, a blinding light. These false teachers were claiming to be apostles of Christ because they needed the proper authority to be attached to. Not just the proper authority, but also the proper morality. They wanted to be teachers of righteousness, and they wanted to be apostles of Christ because they know they need the proper authority, Christ, and they need the proper morality, righteousness. But Scripture tells us, and I want you to turn there with me briefly, 1 John chapter 4, one of the most extensive passages of Scripture dealing precisely with the context that we're in, Satan and his servants. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Translation, have some discernment. Man, the church needs to hear this word. Have discernment. Don't believe every spirit. Just because they're friends with this good teacher and that good teacher, that doesn't mean they, they are the same spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And therefore, I think here the word spirit is sort of a representative term of the false teacher and his doctrines. He says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, just as Jesus prophesied. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And you know what? God is so good to the church. The early church is told, be aware of Christology. And isn't it amazing in the first three, four centuries of the church, what is the predominant doctrine that is being maligned? Christology. He says, every spirit does not, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is in the world. See, this is analogous once again to a satanic order. The Antichrist and his spirit is in his representatives. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Thank you, Lord, that we are overcomers, not because of us, not because of your great apologetics. You're an overcomer, not because you have such great discernment. You're an overcomer, not because you're so smart and they're so dumb. You're an overcomer, not because you, are, you know all knowledge and all mysteries and you can articulate all logical syllogisms and refute all enemies. You are an overcomer because of your union with Christ. He is your force field keeping you to the end of the age. He is your force field that is fortifying you and preserving you for heaven. Thank you, Lord, for union with Christ. Greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Verse 5, very important. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. This is man-made religion. The reason the world gives them a hearing, the reason why there are so many thousands and thousands thousands of Mormons and billions of Muslims is because they are of the world. And when those who speak from the world, meaning their doctrine, their teaching, their philosophy, all man-centered, all originating out of the resources that the world can provide, the philosophies of the world, the teachings of the world, the, the basic rudimentary principles of the world, they listen to them because it speaks their language. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. When you share the gospel, you ever feel like you're talking to a stone wall? You ever, you ever, you ever feel like you, you're just getting nowhere? It, it, they're even repeating the truth out of their own mouth, but they still can't see. It's because they are not from God. God needs to give them regeneration. God has to give them the new birth. God has to open up their minds. God has to enlighten them to the truth or they will never see. They will always be blind and calloused to the truth. By this you know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of error. There can only be two. It's not the truth and then half of the truth. No, it's the truth or it's error. And that's who Jesus was. Darkness and light. Life, death. Eternal life, eternal destruction. That's who Jesus was. The most unrelativistic person in the world. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Finally then, what about their condemnation? Verse 15. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants disguise themselves, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now that's very interesting. Satan comes as, a, as an angel of light, light, and then they come and he says, it's the same thing. 
servants of righteousness, angel of light, angel of light, servants of righteousness. In other words, they are claiming the same moral authority as Satan. And it's a corrupt authority. It is not true. It's not valid. It's not sound. And it's not moral. The most immoral thing that people can engage in is heresy. That might be an overstatement. Pastors do that from time to time. But it's true. And the most immoral thing that people can engage in is to get people to believe in heresy. You are an agent of Satan. You are a, you, you're a servant of the devil when you do that. Boy, it's extremely volatile. And here Paul says, don't be surprised at that. It's not surprising when this happens. Don't marvel at this. Because what they're doing, and here's sort of the, the essence of the whole thing, they are masquerading. They are in disguise. They're, they have their cloak on. They come in as, as speaking about good morals and good truth, right? I talked to a lady once, raised in Texas her whole life, blonde hair, blue eyes. I went to visit, my wife and I went to visit a mosque. She opens the door in full Muslim garb and said, how y'all doing? And I asked her, why did you become a Muslim? She's like, well, you know, it's just that whole Trinity thing never made sense. And I just liked it because it's so moral. I love the way the women dress. So she bought into the culture of Islam. They impressed her with her culture. And I began to undermine the teachings of Islam. She looked at me like she'd seen a ghost. Uh, that's not what I was taught. I've never heard that before. Well, of course not. <laughs> They're never going to come to you and tell you the truth. I'll never forget seeing these young Australian boys and girls, they must have been all teenagers, going forward in what appeared to be a Muslim altar call to become a Muslim, to say the Shahada and to become a Muslim. And then after the altar call, the, the, the imam that was speaking went line by line, shaking all the hands of all the people, at least the men. He, I'll never forget seeing the, the look on a girl's face when she went to shake the man's hand and he, he retracted his hand as to say, we don't do that. That's how little she knew about what she just did. <laughs> you don't shake hands with men anymore. Unbelievable deception that we're in today, brothers and sisters. We need to enter into a time of discernment. And I am very thankful to be surrounded with brothers and sisters that are discerning and that have discernment and that I know will always strive for a high premium of discernment in the church. I'm so thankful to that. Let's talk lastly about their condemnation. Romans chapter 3 verse 8 makes it clear that false teachers and really anyone, that their condemnation is just. It says that there are those who were slanderously reporting that Paul was an antinomian, saying, let us do evil that good may come. And Paul says, their condemnation is just, meaning it is righteous. It, is, it, it conforms to, to what is right. It is in keeping with their own deeds. Their own deeds have undone them. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, much in the same way, he says of the false teachers there, their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. Even individualistically, 2 Timothy 4, 14, 
Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. What you reap, you will, what you sow, you will reap. And false teaching will reap the whirlwind of God's judgment. God's judgment. The worst thing about a heretic is that the activity they're engaged in is satanic. And because it is satanic, it is fundamentally antichrist. And because it is antichrist, it is fundamentally anti-church, anti-Christian. Lastly, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is so important that we look at this because this is what God thinks of those that try to corrupt his church through false teaching. And Paul made it very clear in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, or 3, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he makes it very clear that the church needs to be built on a solid theological foundation. But then he goes on to describe the consequences that are in store for those that would destroy God's church. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God? There, the you is a plural referring to all the believers, the whole Corinthian church. You are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, i.e. the church, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So when false teachers come in to try to destroy the church, they can be certain that a certain destruction awaits them. It's a gloomy, gloomy uh, uh, future. It's a, it's a very gloomy prospect. It's a, it's, a, it's a gloomy outlook for a false teacher. And if nothing else, on that level, we should have compassion for them. We should preach the gospel to them. We should awaken them to what they're doing. We shouldn't be afraid to, to, to expose their false teaching because the end is going to be unbearable even for them. And so we have a great duty, not just to preserve the truth here, but also to awaken those that are preaching a false gospel, false Jesus, false message, false spirit, because their destruction will be unbearable. And it will be, it will, it will be a, a, a shock, really, to them. It will be swift, it will be quick, their foot will slip, and before you know it, they will meet their maker in judgment. So let's be those kinds of men and women courageous enough to stand up for the truth and to also snatch a sinner out of the fire, as it were. Amen? Let's pray.